Hi, this is Dr. Osa Saldivar with another episode of the Way to College podcast and actually another episode of the Way to College podcast Office Hours with Dr. J. Um, I um, I love this segment because, you know, I, I worked for many years in higher ed and I was never someone who ever saw myself going into higher education when I was a kid. Um, and then I think I got to college and I was able to like nerd out on topics and 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 really develop a love for school. I came across today's guest over social media and I saw that she started her own podcast. I saw that she was doing some really incredible work, um, research and, and I, I, I was really fascinated and just wanted to learn more about her work. So, um, Melissa, would you mind introducing yourself to our audience? Yes. Hello, everybody. I am Dr. Melissa Beta, pronounced she, her doctora. I am an assistant professor at the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley in the College of Education. And I um, I right now teach in the doctoral uh, program. So I teach qualitative and advanced qualitative research primarily. And we have a master's program that we have just launched. We, I call it a soft launch um, in student affairs because the first two cohorts are solely for UTRGV staff and faculty. And then after that, it'll open up to the general public. Um, but that's um, those are my teaching duties um, at the university. And then aside from that, my research agenda primarily focuses on formerly incarcerated and system impacted students. And um, I started that research in California and I'm now transitioning to Texas and seeing what that looks like here in the state. And and you've got a podcast, right? Yes, yes. Thank yeah, you yeah. for writing. <laughs> I just tell, launched tell the him. podcast. <laughs> Um, I just launched it uh, literally two weeks ago. It's called the Scholar Homies Podcast. Um, the game is to be told, not sold, conversations with the soul. And that's a play on words. If you follow me on Instagram, I am at Academic Soul. And I've had that page for about four years now. And I, it started as a when I was a doctoral student. I started just journeying, you know, my kind of just documenting microblogging my journey as a working mother, um, as a professional in student affairs that was in a doctoral program, I found it to be very isolating. And so I, I started documenting to see, you know, to kind of build community and to find other, maybe other working mothers who were also pursuing higher education. Um, and so then that kind of led to, I, have a, 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 I call it a small following. And then I always, I kind of wanted to know more, right? And so that's where the podcast kind of spin off from because um, with the podcast, I feel like we always do get into our research and it's very, um, I don't want to say it's very prescribed, but it's sort of prescribed. We have to stay on script <laughs> when, when we're when we're kind of in these spaces or especially when we're in platicas, when we're invited to panels, we're in these very like professional settings. And sometimes you just want to like platica, you just want to you know chat a little bit more. And we hold so many identities and we have, there's so many hope. Uh, other pieces of who we are as humans and I think I don't think we get to share that often and so that's where the podcast comes into place because a lot of my colegas I love yeah I love hearing about their research but I also love talking about them with stock about the stock market or about music or just about these other you know other things that kind of can also fulfill us and so that's where the podcast um, is coming into play so um, it's called the Scholar Homies because I'm I'm pretty much having platicas with with you know people who I know and then some who I'm getting to know a little bit more. That's awesome. I I love that and I couldn't agree more about these spaces. Um, uh, and I know exactly exactly what you what you're talking about. Um, you know, I um, you, you talked a little bit about the research that you do and and how you're transitioning to Texas and, and going to start doing research here. Let me ask you though. How did you how did you come to find that work? Like what led you to that work? Yeah, so I am carceral impacted. So I have family members that are currently informally incarcerated in the states of California, Arizona, and Texas. And as a young child, actually in Texas, where I would go and, you know, see my tia, excuse me, my tío in county jail. It was, I had these just early experiences of okay we're gonna go visit your deal you're gonna say bye to him because he's gonna be transferred away and once he's transferred it's kind of like too far for us to go visit so we have to go say bye um and I remember thinking okay I would get that pep talk in the car on the way there 
And then thinking it was also only my family that was dealing with this. And then when we would get to the facilities, I would see other families. And it just really always stayed with me, right? Like, gosh, we're not the only ones dealing with this, but it, we, it feels like we are because we can't talk about it. There's a, there's a stigma around talking about incarceration and about the carceral system. And so that just always stayed with me throughout my life. Um, and then I, it just, when I... I started seeing parallels between the carceral system and the educational system. So, you know, for me, you, we know we have elementary, middle, high school, we have these kind of milestones. And then when it came to college, it, I saw similar parallels. So I had, I went to community college and so I was a transfer student, got into my four year. And then after that, you know, my master's program and whatnot, and then the parallels with the carceral system is I would see my family members, they went from juvenile hall, they went to YA, which was California Youth Authority, and then they sort of, you know, graduated to the, the California state prison system. And then there was transfers. So then in our educational system, we see, oh, we're transferring, students can go from this university to this university, and that's, that parallel happens in the carceral system. And so... I, I just kind of always paid attention to these two systems. I see, I see the world in systems, I guess you could say. And I was just seeing these parallels. And it wasn't until my doctoral program where I finally, one, was able to ask, like answer questions I always had. And I had worked already in student affairs as a full-time professional for at least 10 years at that point. And so I was already helping students in different student populations. And so I know the resources that were available to them, you know, to student, uh, specific student groups. So I always wondered, like, what about formerly incarcerated students? Because I had a cousin that was released and I saw him struggle with reentering society. So I, mm -hmm. I thought about like reentry, like what education programs exist for reentry? Like, do they exist? Are they on our campus? I just had all these questions and I happened to be in my doctoral program. And so I, I told my chair um, in California at the time, equity was it was like the big topic. If you were researching equity, like you were being like fast paced, you were going to get dissertation of the year, you were going to get the kudos because equity was was it. And so I knew this was part of equity, but it was to me really specific and nobody was touching <clears throat> it. Nobody was asking about formerly incarcerated students. And so I thought, you know, these are questions that I have. And she really encouraged me to, to go with it because my dissertation is the first one that I had. My study is the first study that that talks about formerly incarcerated Latino men in California community colleges. And so we were literally trailblazing. Like we were in a space where we didn't we didn't know and we were having to look at other fields to kind of create this literature that didn't exist. And so we just kept asked questions, kept asking and then kind of realizing like this doesn't exist yet, but we know that these people do exist in our spaces and then come to find, you know, there's formerly incarcerated professors. There's programs that have existed like um, in California, there's, you know, the three systems, this, California Community Colleges, the CSUs, UCs. Well, their CSUs, they have Project Rebound that's been in existence for decades, you know, and and realizing like you have professor, again, professors, staff members, like you have people that have come up through the system. It's just, it's I guess it's never been studied before or it's not, it, at the time it wasn't as publicly known. Um, and so that's, that's where we're, I think I'm, we're starting to like normalize that. Like, okay, we have this population that exists within our educational community. How do we visibly support them instead of not, you know, instead of supporting them, you know, on, on the side or in secret, um, yeah. how do we visibly support them? Like we should, like our other, our other population groups. And so um, that's kind of what's led me to here. And then now I'm in Texas. And so, and Texas is, is very, a different climate. It's a very different environment. And um, we, I always joke with my friends, like it's California in the nineties and which was, <laughs> <laughs> which was a bad time because it was like, we, you went through so it was growing pains for California in the 90s when we say that. We we don't and I, we don't say that in a way to like 
I don't know. I don't, it's, it's, it's when, cause we living through it, you know, it was painful Yeah. because there was so, it was like, we were like so oppressed and our communities were so, we're still fighting for, for, for rights, right. During that yeah. time. And so that's what that represents is that Texas is California in the nineties, because this population is still fighting for, for a, just a little bit of equity. Like, oh my gosh, I, 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 so then I come here and I, I almost want to like flip my research agenda around because the K through 12 system bothers me. Like the star exam bothers me. Like uh, I, I'm, you know, I am, look, I'm a fan of abolishing it all. Like uh, get rid of the star exam. Let's start from scratch, like burn it to the ground and rebuild it. <laughs> I like, give me the match. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. I... No, 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 please. Because I'll keep, I'll keep asking. <laughs> <laughs> well, so a couple of things. I love that, um, you know, I, I think about some of my own educational journeys and and and, and interests. And, um, and it's funny how, like, when we're kids, right, we observe a lot of things and, and, and the things that tend to stick. And so for, for you talking about visiting your uncle, and and sort of being aware of all of these systems and then but also then looking as you're as you're going through school and moving through higher ed just being aware right of the systems and sort of the processes that exist and then looking at because of because of those early experiences right and and family members experiences seeing parallels and and thinking i want to learn more they you know can i study this and so my first question or my next question for you is, was there any pushback at all about do did any of your advisors? I know you talked about your, your dissertation chair, but did you get any pushback from anybody, any of your committee members or any? Did anybody say this wasn't worth studying? Oh, no, not for my committee members. My um my committee members are like my femtors, mentors, two of the first two in particular, they I've known them for years. But prior to my my being on my dissertation, and they are equity trailblazers in the state, really, I would say in the nation. And so, no, they they encouraged me a thousand percent. They also knew that I was they were like, you are in a space that's never been kind of it hasn't been done before, but we're going to yeah. support you. And so I, I and I kind of in other ways that they also supported me, I always tell them like they if they hadn't if they hadn't supported me, it, it would, you know, it kind of would change, right. It would change the dynamics, but no, they were uh, um, always supportive. I will say I did receive pushback, but not from them. Right. It would be from other faculty, like not even in my institution, people from that, that just don't get it. And, and, and a lot of people who don't understand, right. Like why, why are you focused on this population? Like why, why care? And so it's like, why do we not care? You know, I also learned that we can't teach empathy to everybody. And mm -hmm. I, I've realized like some people are going to get it and some people are not going to get it. And I'm going to focus on those who get it um, because the ones that don't have to do the unlearning. There's a lot of work, I think, that you have to do as a, um, a social justice advocate, as a transformative you know, change agent to even get to that space to say that you're truly doing equity work there's a lot of unlearning you have to do. And I can't teach somebody that. They got to go through that process on their own. So it's a matter of like unlearning and then relearning what we were not basically taught in our educational system. I, I Well, thank you. And, and I ask because I know anytime we choose, right? Anytime we develop a research agenda, um, I, I feel like like we're going to get some pushback. Like there's one person maybe, you know, but um, that, that might question, right. Why, why study this? Um, and, and I, I think I'm more, I'm definitely more in the camp of that, you know, why not? Right. Like, you know, and, and I don't know, you know, statistic, I'm not up to date with any of these statistics, but I think about the number of people incarcerated, right. I think of just the, the prison system in the United States and I, hearing your 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 story, I was just floored that this hasn't been studied. Like that you've come along and you're studying this, but nobody's been asking these questions. Nobody's been, you know, looking at this stuff. When you hear that, what are you? What what, what were your first thoughts? 
part of me is not surprised because mm -hmm. when you look at the history of mass incarceration, it's change takes a long time. Mm -hmm. And I know that in my lifetime, I will not see I'm a I'm a critical race theorist, right? So I believe that racism is enduring. So I believe that in that sense that I will not see racism will exist in my lifetime and possibly in my daughter's lifetime. But I hope that in my grandchildren's lifetime, we can start to continue to unlearn this and unpack this. So given that, because I see the parallels between race and the carceral system and mass incarceration, it's there's so much undoing that we have to do and it's taken decades to get here so it's going to take us decades to unlearn this and so part of me is not surprised that it's slow it's it's painful because it's so slow but that doesn't mean that we don't do the work right mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that it might just because i will not see equity in my lifetime that i don't that i don't work towards it um and I, oh my gosh, I think of that a lot with like um, the, we, you know, Texas had an election a few weeks ago. And for me, it was painful, right? Because elect, local elections absolutely matter. And although it wasn't entirely in, I would say, my favor, that doesn't mean like you can mourn that day and maybe the mm -hmm. next day. But on the third day, you got to go back to work. Like we, we still got to continue to fight for equity for communities that that cannot vote. Um, and I just think we have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable, right? And mm -hmm. asking those hard questions. And it's okay that we don't have the answers. Um, like I'm, I'm mentoring a student in Austin and he's also from California, but his research will focus in Texas. And he's asking like, you know, he, he's kind of like, do you think I should, you know, I want to focus on this here. I'm like, you should do it. It's never been done. I could tell you it's never been done in the state of Texas and you should absolutely like go through that journey. Like go, go down that lane because we need, we need that in this state. We need to encourage and we need to validate each other so that we can, make strides here right and and kind of like liberate like free our people in a sense like mentally if anything um, um so part of me is not surprised because change takes such a long time you um thank you um thank you for sharing that and and so i had a bunch of questions that just came up now as you're as you're talking um and so I'm trying to write them down <laughs> quickly because I, I want to get back to something that you said. You talked about um, you're teaching here in, in Texas now, and you talked about the Texas, you know, correctional system. And you 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 said something that was really interesting because you said you wanted you you attempted to flip your research agenda. And so, what do you mean? What do you mean by that? So I as a parent, I'm a parent, and my daughter is in fifth grade, and she's ten years old. And my biggest fear of moving to Texas when we did was the educational system for her, because I'm fine. Let's, you know, I have a doctorate. I, I'm, I'm going to be good. Right. I feared what she would be taught in school, to be honest. And so when we moved here, we so and we moved here during the pandemic. So in California, we were um, we were in quarantine literally when we moved. So it looked very different for the states. So Texas was open at the time. California was not. And so when we moved, my daughter had already been home, like uh, social distance learning with me for two years. Um, when we moved to the state, we transitioned. Um, Texas, I guess what I want to say, like, was already they were already back in school for a year. Mm -hmm. So realizing two things, one, that my daughter was going to go back into a system where she hadn't she left, unfortunately, like March 2020 from her from her school that was she was comfortable with and like jumping back into a whole new school in a whole new state. And so I had I struggled with that a lot because, you know, parent guilt and like the transition. But what I will tell you is that in those in that year and a half that she was with me, she learned more with me than she did in her first year of schooling in the state of Texas. And it was, it really saddened me because 
she, you know, I, I tried to pick again, I go through the schools. I tried to pick the best school here and I asked questions and they're like, oh, it was a blue ribbon school back in the 20 or back in, you know, 20 <laughs> years ago. And I joke around and, you know, I'm not the biggest football fan. But I will say it's like the Cowboys, right? Like the Cowboys is America's football team. And I'll say this. I am a Cowboys fan. The Cowboys is is America's football team. But yeah, like in the 90s, right? Like in the 90s is when, you know, they won the championships, not necessarily today. So the same thing with the Blue Ribbon School. Like, yeah, it was a Blue Ribbon School, like, you know, a few years ago. But what is it doing today? Yeah. Um, Like that you can hold on to that. And just the atmosphere of the school really, really um, saddened me. Like, um, I'm, and again, this is, this is where like the intersectionalities of being a scholar, researcher, and a parent come into play. Because as a, as a scholar, I'm looking at the space like what what is communicated in the building you know like is it dark what what are the images that they're projecting to the students I'm seeing all of that and then I'm being mindful of that I'm you know it's just like what are they teaching to the students and my daughter would go in and it was immediately like in in September they're focused on the star exam that happens in April and I'm like, yeah. okay, where's the science? Where's the arts? Where's the music? It was strictly math and reading. My daughter would go into school and do math worksheets for four hours as a child. And I'm thinking, I don't know an adult that could sit in a room for four hours and do math worksheets and not be bored out of their mind. And yeah. it, it, thinks, it makes me think of, we are literally pushing students out of the educational system. And it makes me think of all the other students, like all the other kids who maybe don't have, don't have the parents to advocate, right? And that maybe there's not the their resources are not there, so that where they can say like this is wrong, like what are we doing to our students? And then thinking that it's part our our educational system is set up, you know, it's set up like this intentionally, because we. <laughs> I don't know how to say this like in a soft way, but we intentionally want, we intentionally don't want them to learn specific things. We we don't want them to, to be aware of certain things, right? We're, we're teaching them in a, in a way where they're going to be, you know, working nine to five or they're going to be working blue collar jobs. It's set up intentionally like that. Um, and that really bothers me, right? It really bothered me for the, for the first year because I'm like, oh my gosh, what are we doing to our children? So I will say, I, gosh, for the first year I had, I went and I searched different schools. Like I, I was struggling because I'm a new faculty. I need to focus on like learning this faculty role, but I'm also struggling with my daughter being in this educational system that's that's set up for failure. They're, yeah. they're only, they're only, focused on the star exam and that's it like at, yeah. literally after they took the star exam they had fun opportunities they you know and it's needed there needs to be a balance and you see the stress within this the teachers and then the administrators so a lot of the students that I teach in my program the majority of them are k-12 through educators they're they're principals or they want they want to be superintendents assistant principals some of them are counseling and so I hear a lot of it too. And I'm, I'm trying to like learn, like I'm trying to like understand the culture. There's a yeah. very, and actually I learned this term last night. I'm going to share <laughs> with you I, for the last year and a half that I've been here, I've been trying to put a, a word on it. I'm like, I, I can't describe the culture that exists here, but what is it? Because we need to dismantle it. Right. Like yeah. what, what exists here? And I, for a long time, I thought it was respectable, respect, respectful politics, but it's not. It's respectful passiveness. And when my Ah. student was presenting this, I'm like, yes. And I told them in class last night, I said, I've been struggling with the culture here because I'm like, what, what is it that we know it's wrong, but we still keep, we still keep doing, we still keep, you know, performing to it. This respectful passiveness, this lack of, this lack of advocating for ourselves. And it just bothers me. Like if you know it's wrong, let's say that it's wrong, you know, like, yeah. and I'll, I'll, I'll even say with my students last year, I would encourage, you know, of course, new kid on the block. And if, you know, hey, you don't like how comps is done, you know, you're the student, you, there's a student rights office and you have, um, you have rights and you can advocate as, 
as a group, like let's, you know, I can't do it, but as a cohort get yeah. together and <laughs> let the department chair know. <laughs> I, I don't like how comps are done. Um, do my colleagues appreciate that? Of course not. But again, <clears throat> let's not say that we're doing equity work and we um, are, we, we cannot say we're doing equity work by no means if we're having these inequity milestones for our students, right? We have roadblocks for our students. We're not helping yeah. them graduate. We're creating roadblocks for them. So similar to the STAR exam, it's the same thing. You know, it's like in the STAR exam, oh, oh, I'm like, don't get me started. I'm, I'm still <laughs> learning. I'm still learning. But if you ask me, it's all tied to money, right? It's like some yeah. person in Austin gave their friend um, the deal, like to sign this, you know, huge, it's, it's just, it's all about money. And it, and then it trickles down to, <clears throat> to the students and it, it's so harmful to, like, mm-hmm. what are we doing to our students? What are we doing to the teachers? We already know that the teachers are, are mass exiting the field. And um, all that to say is that it just really, it really bothered me to, in a, in a way where I wanted to, to re, to flip my research agenda, because I see it as we're pushing out our students. We, we already know we're pushing out our teachers, yeah. but we're also pushing out our students all for this exam that doesn't, teach us anything and I I tell my daughter this all the time I'm like it doesn't matter what you score on the star exam because you're brilliant no there's no standardized testing that can test your brilliance like Mm -hmm. we're missing the cultural piece we're missing the community and we we're in the the Rio Grande Valley we have such great culture here that's not measured on the star exam yeah burn it (laughs) burn it so you know I, I appreciate that um, as, as a Rio Grande Valley native, <laughs> that's a, that's a, um, yeah, you know, I, I, um, had so much, so much there to unpack. I, um, I think just, so from my perspective a little bit, um, I, you know, I was, a, I was good at school. I was a kid that was good at doing school. Right. Like, and so, you know, I, I didn't grow up in the era of star. We had a different standardized test. And so it was just getting started as I was leaving public education, but I remember, you know, and I think part of this, which is what fascinates me and led me down this path. And even this, like the, the series of podcasts is because I got to college and I was like, I, I always tell people I had to go to California for, for college to learn about South Texas culture. And, and I was like, I, I didn't know who Américo Paredes was. I didn't know Gloria Salud grew up down the street from me. And and yet I read her in like five or six classes. And I'm like, what the hell's going on? Mm-hmm. Right. And I'd come home and 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 fortunately I had I did have one teacher who who um, I think it, it introduced me to a lot of stuff and, and definitely sort of showed me the richness in my community. But a lot of that I learned after the fact, after I've been through the K to 12, my first year, my first year teaching at the university, I was doing, I was teaching pre-service teachers. So junior level students, I sit in, I, I arrange the class in like a circle and I'm sitting there and they come in and, um, and I ask them, I said, I, I want us to go around the room. I want you to introduce yourself, but I'd really like you to tell me what you hope to get from this class. And it was you talk about this, this passive, right? Um, they said, whatever you tell me, whatever you tell me, I need to learn. Whatever I need to do to get an A. Not que ver con learning. And I've kind of beside myself, like, really? really? Like, I mean, is, this, is this really happening? Um, and so, so no, I, I totally, totally understand, you know, and... Um, you know, um, gosh, you know, I was uh, I was on the school board. Actually, I was a school board member, a school board president and um, didn't get reelected. And that was fine. It was a, it was a wonderful opportunity for me. I loved serving my community. But and I'm probably you know, people aren't going to be happy that I said this, but I have shared this with others. I said, you know, one of the most frustrating things about being in that position was it felt like adults were actively working against kids. Mm-hmm. And it and it it was like it 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 was maddening. It was sad. It was frustrating. 
but it was like actively working against the best interest of kids and learning. And yeah, and I was, yeah. Um, so I, everything, everything that you said, definitely, uh, um, definitely, you know, um, I definitely connect with. Um, so thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you for that perspective. Um, I think uh, just to your note about telling students, right, if you're not happy, if you weren't happy with the comps, <laughs> a friend of mine is actually in the doctoral program. And I think I think he told me about that. I think we had a conversation about that. So I was, uh, you know, but that's, but you're right. That's a good point, right? Like, and, 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 you know, one thing that all of that to say, what I got most excited about in college was I could ask questions and I felt like K through 12, like I couldn't like, you know, why are we doing, why are we studying this? Why do I have to learn this? Because I said so because it's in the curriculum, because I'm the teacher. It's mandated. It's yeah. mandated, right? The state says you have to, and and I think like for me, you know, I always tell my students, um, I think in, in school, I was one of the kids that like, they would say, oh, he's a nerd. No, I nerded out in college. That's where it was like, like, you know, don't, you know, listen to any college students out there. Please don't follow my example. But I remember I'd go to the bookstore and I'd buy books for classes I wasn't taking. And I just show up to my dorm room with books and my roommates are like, are you, how many classes are you taking? Oh no, I just, I just wanted to read these books because, because all of a sudden my mind was open to, to all of these things and the questions that I had about the world and about my community, I was in a space where I could ask them. Right. And, and so for me, this is fascinating because, because it's kind of like, what are the questions that we're asking? What do other people want to, or they were not asking. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we don't teach critical thinking at all in K through 12. And in my doctoral class, I had a student who she's in her first year of the doc program. And she says, she really struggles with me sometimes because I ask, she goes, I've never been asked what I think before. And you ask me what I think because she, again, she wants me to like, she goes, tell me, you know, what, what do I need to do? And I'm like, well, no, what do you want to do? What do you want to yeah. study? Why do you have those questions? And she's like, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what to, how to respond to that. And, and I told her, and I told this to the class, because when she asked that this is at no fault to you, yeah. this is at fault to our educational system, because as a system, we don't teach critical thinking. And then we're, we wait until students get to a, a doc program and then they're asked these questions. We have to, as faculty, have to meet the students where they are. You know, we have to walk them through the program. Like, um, I, I, I'm teach. Last night was advanced qualitative research. You know, my biggest reward is that when I went through my doc program, I, I wasn't taught it the best way either, right? I stayed up on YouTube to like three or four in the morning to try to figure it out. I was going through books. And I really wanted to learn and like not learn, but understand. And I needed to understand it. I didn't know, of course, at the time that I would teach it years later. But the fact that my students presented their analysis in a way where they got it was so fulfilling to me because the flip side is like, oh, you know, our students don't write well. It's like, well, do you are you teaching them how to write well? Yeah. Right. And again, it's not at fault to them. It's at fault to our entire educational system, like nationally. Right. Of course, within the state. But, you know, nationally, we're we're failing each other. And I think we're doing it deliberately. Right. We don't want. Why do you think the numbers for doctors are so low? Like Mm. and even for our community, like we're we're like a fraction of a percent. Right. Um, And then even more so, it's it's all if you it's, it's all intentional, like every system is set up to operate the way it's supposed to operate. And so then how do we get in with these systems and, you know, dismantle them and how do we fix them? How do we change them? Because they're not built for us. So if we can understand that these educational systems are not even built for us to begin with, um, Mm -hmm. then that's how we can go in and incorporate, you know, bring those cultural pieces. Like some things that I tell my students all the time in K through 12, what I what I do love about this this school system here is, and this may seem so minute, but like the men, the food menu, right? Like they have tamales, 
they have conchas for breakfast. I'm like, that's so amazing. That's so amazing because you are literally catering to the culture here. And that's beautiful. And how do we do that nationally, right? Like that's something that the Valley does really well. But like in California, like San Diego's border town as well. Um, they do not have conchas for breakfast in San Diego, right? And so, but it's 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 a, it may seem so minute, but it's so important. Like the music that you hear, like yeah. so I'll, I'll, to kind of like go full circle, I guess you could say. My daughter's in a new school this year, and I love it. It's it's across the street from her other school <laughs> last year, and it's so different. It's operated so differently, but they. And I say that because like the music we had, um, they had like their their fall festival. And when we went, you hear Selena, you hear, you know, like you hear like the Hano music. And I'm like, oh, it's so beautiful. Like there's, you know, there are reasons why I did pick to move down here. Like it, I, I will say it's been a culture shock because the valley is very different <clears throat> from other parts of the state. And and there was a culture shock, but there are culture pieces why I did I did pick the valley. And that's what I'm reminded of, right? Like those mm-hmm. culture when you hear the music, when you see the food, like and it's just and it's integrated. You yeah. know, it's not it's it's part of this, it's part of you know the culture. So I think those are pieces that I, I that I think we do really well. Um, or that's done really well down here. So it, it's not, and I think that's important. Those are those pieces that you need to tell the students that like you can bring your whole self to school, right? And yeah. you belong, like your sense of belonging. Even I'm trying to think we had my oh, I can't remember what holiday it was, but they had a like a it was probably during Hispanic Heritage Month. They had like an event. Every grade had a different like poster they had to do or whatnot. And to see all of the children's work. And all of the different people that they selected, yeah, you know, that was so beautiful because one, they didn't do that last year at her old school. Right? <laughs> that, that was not representative, but at yeah. least the, the students at this school could see that, that change. And so then what bothers me is that while I have the social capital and awareness to move my daughter's schools, it bothers me that all those other kids are still in that school last year from last year. And will probably stay there. And they, yeah. you know, gosh, it's like, it's such a disservice. Like, it's such a disservice to all the children that are in schools like that in the Valley. Um, and that bothers me. Like, as just as a, as a parent, as a human, as an educator, like, it just, it hits my core because um, it's just a disservice to our community. Do, do you think... Um... Because you're an educator, because like like you aware of the systems, mm-hmm. you know what's working, what doesn't work. You see the assets where maybe folks don't look, see the assets, and you also you've you know because I think about myself sometimes being in a privileged space, being able to ask those questions. Do you think a lot of it is because of because of the the term that that your students came up with, or, or just because those parents? don't know any better and don't know to ask those questions or that that the school could be better for their their kids. Yeah, I think last night we talked about this, right? We talk about like the lack of parent advocacy that exists, right? Like the parents and part of it is culturally, right? That parents are, they give their trust into educators, which I don't think is wrong, but I do think that do parents know their rights? Do their parents know that they can advocate for better? Like as a culture, do we know that if we don't like something, we can say that, we can ask for more. And I don't think that we're taught that. I don't think that we're, we're validated, that we can disrupt spaces. And, and it doesn't have to be, you know, I joke with burning it down to the ground. It doesn't literally have to be fire. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it literally just pushes back a little on the status quo. Because again, it goes back to being like that respectful passiveness. Like we, we have to be in line. We have to not ask questions. We just have to be right. Yeah. Um, and so I always call it like disrupting academic spaces. Um, and I, I'll, I'll do that in in different ways all the time, you know, and how I, how I show up, how I look, what I'm wearing, what I'm dressing. If I bring my daughter to a conference setting, like it, basically like something that's quote unquote, not perceived as normal or as professional, I'm going to disrupt it. Um, 
because I want to normalize, right, that we we have all of these intersectionalities, but I, I just think, like, how do we, and I, I'm thinking with this, how do parents also have the confidence to ask? One thing in particular my students were talking about was there, um, some of them are, are, are special educate, education teachers, and so they have these special meetings with the parents, and oftentimes they said, you know, parents don't ask any questions. They, and I'm like, do they even know? Do they even know to ask? And what yeah. is the, what, and I go back to the space, like, what does it even look like? Could you imagine as a parent, you're coming into a school meeting with 10 educators sitting around a table, like how intimidating is that? Mm -hmm. um, and then is, what does that space look like? It, it, so I, I, it, it kind of feels like a sentence, right? Like you're coming in, your daughter, your child's going to have, you know, these accommodations. This is what we're giving to them. Like we haven't even um, built a rapport with you, but this is what we're, we're telling you. And then the parent it just responds with whatever you, you know, whatever you say is best because mm -hmm. that's what they've been taught. And so yeah, it, it's, it's sort of like just teaching, I think. And I, we talked about this, like, how do we give parents training? How do we give them like, you know, Basically, how do we let them know that it's okay to advocate for themselves? Um, and I, I want to like loop in the Uvalde incident. So I don't know if you know this or knew this, but I had a, um, a cousin who was shot and she survived the Uvalde shooting. And so I think a lot of the Uvalde parents, like a lot, because I think about how they have collectively been advocating for themselves and it doesn't like we didn't have to have this incident for them to advocate for themselves, but I'm so proud that they are right. And, and, and I think about that and them pushing back against this, this, the district and, you know, even that is like troublesome. Cause I, I don't know if you follow, but this has been a couple of weeks now. There one parent in particular, he did a, like a sit out outside the school district I want to say it went for like 72 hours and it was peaceful because they recorded it. They, they posted it live. But you know what they did was they literally put images like on a projector of their children and played it on the school district building and like wow. how powerful and sad and like, but just that is like a disruption, right? Because yeah. it's in your face. We're going to, we're going to be here. We're going to remind you that, this incident happened. And this is why I always, I always remind people of Uvalde and I always bring it up because we cannot look away. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that goes into like advocacy, how in this respectful passiveness of the culture that's here in the state, like we need to demand action. We need to demand better for our students. And I, I'll make this connection because I do think there's two issues we have one that's you know like mass um, mass shootings that that that's an issue for our nation and then we have you know the school to prison pipelines and the immediate response to the shooting was we're going to increase you know policing in our k-12 system and i'm like no 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 like that's not the answer that's yeah. not the answer at all because what you're creating we already know that the school to prison pipeline exists and we already know that increasing you know policing in schools is is harmful go, go back to like the cali you know texas is california in the 90s because california in the 90s had we had a lot of uh police in school we had metal detectors and it did not work and then we look here, I have students that work in, um, I'm going to, I'm going to mess it up, but there are these like disciplinary centers when schools are, <laughs> when, when children are removed from their normal school and they go into these disciplinary centers, that's all new for me. I'm like, what is that? Like, mm, yeah. Oh my goodness. This is horrible. So one of my students invited me to her campus and I, I was in shock because there were literally metal detectors and there's literally campus police in the center and it literally mirrors prison, a juvenile hall. And I was just like, oh my goodness, that like is jarring to me. It's literally replicating the school. It's literally the school to prison pipeline in practice. Yeah. And then there's, um, I wanna, I'm still like getting familiarized with the city or the towns, but I think in Mission. So here in the Valley, they have these police towers 
that are stationed throughout the valley yeah. that I have never seen anywhere else in the nation. I've only seen it here. It, it's very surveillance. Mm-hmm. And it, again, it bothers me because why are we surveilling seeing communities, you know, brown communities, essentially, right? Uh, what does that communicate to us? And it, it's a huge, it's, it's huge. Well, immediately after Uvalde, there was this elementary school that had one of those towers, like right on the property. And I'm like, oh my goodness, like, what, what is that? That's horrible because it's literally, I, it's literally like a prison, little mini prison tower on an elementary school campus. And you're insinuating the school to prison pipeline. Like, cause that's what you see in a prison. You see a prison tower yard and you see buildings, the, the high fencing, all of that. Um, not to say that we don't have an issue with, with massive, with, you know, um, mass shootings in the nation. We absolutely do. But the response is not to include and to add more police, right? The response yeah. should be more about mental health. It should be, you know, there. I will say our higher education system years ago in higher ed, we had mass shootings, unfortunately, regularly nationally, right? There was a time where I would walk on my campus and I would think to myself, like, do I know what to do if there's a mass shooting? Do I know where to go? Because it was happening so regular. And <laughs> that was so unhealthy to think of, but you kind of had to think of, of your safety first. Yeah. And what they did was they got campus police, they got admissions, they got psychology, they got someone from faculty and they formed these committees. And if there was a student that hit sort of all these markers, they would, there was prevention. They would go out reach out to the student, reach out to see if they needed, you know, mental health services and, and whatnot. And so how do we use that same formula in the K-12 mm-hmm. system. So when I think of the Uvalde shooter, I want to say, if I remember correctly, he was a, a dropout in the 11th grade. But you're not going to tell me from K through 11th, there were not these, you know, kind of flags throughout. And I had a colleague actually who who looked at his profile and she she did a presentation on it. And there were, there were several flags throughout, right? So if somebody looking at his kind of his history would have seen the progression, you know, there would, there, if there, we had preventative measures in place, we, we possibly, you know, maybe they, he could have been helped. Right. Um, that's one aspect. The other aspect I always think of is we also know the profiles of who these shooters are. Right. Cause we unfortunately have had so many and he fits the profile. Right. Um, there was a domestic violence incident just before that. That's always almost always what happens. And I always think, like, what if we knew that there was a domestic violence incident that was around the school? Why didn't the school go on lockdown? And I don't want to go into it because there were so many failures that happened there. But I, it was just, you know, I it, all that to go back to. <sighs> And I kind of ranted on it this morning on my stories about like mental health. Like, what are we not? We're not touching mental health. And we're, we're, mm. we, we just continue to pretend that as a nation, we're OK. You know, as a as a field, we're OK. And we just are piling on, you know, like moving on, like as nothing has happened. We're, we're, we're living through all of these traumas, We the pandemic. Right. We've um, everyone's so rushed to go back to work in person. Well, has anyone we're still grieving the people we've lost over the last two and a half years. Um, We're still grieving that kind of that space and that time. But of course, there's this urgency to to get back to normal. And, And I think the perception is that we are back to normal, but we're not because, you know, we we haven't processed any of this and and we continue to have mass shootings every you know few days in this nation we're not processing that because as soon as we think we're processing it there's another one yeah you know and so there's these multiple i don't know there is just there's so many complexities that 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 are existing um and i this is where i think i ranted (laughs) (laughs) no i i mean i i think right it it is about like you said, these disruptions, right? Mm-hmm. The creating this space where we ask, like, you know, is that right? Or, you know, should that, that shouldn't, that's not normal, right? We need to question that. Um, you know, the the last question that I had for you, I, I think you touched on and, and but feel free to, to, you know, if you want to elaborate, but I wanted to ask, you know, your research agenda, the the work that you've done, 
how does then that inform your teaching? And I think you talked a little bit about that, but is there anything that you want to add to that? Because I mean, thinking about like, especially, and I especially ask this because the sort of how you've described some of the students, right? Um, and just kind of the, the, the one student in particular that you said, nobody's ever asked me what I think. Um, so how does this work inform your teaching? <clears throat> It really kind of centers my teaching. I will say one thing as a scholar, you're taught how to do research. You're not taught how to be a professor and how to teach. And so I've had to like, I don't want to say hodgepodge, but I've had to really be mindful of how, of how I, want, I want to do that. So first I do it with, a, with my research is also informed through an anti-deficit lens. So everything, and not just my research, my teaching, my work, my life, I'm always looking through it through an anti-deficit lens. And so how that informs my teaching is, is multiple ways. One is I'm very mindful, intentional with the, the, the readings that my students are doing. So like you mentioned that you had to go out of state to learn certain readings. Well, a new class I was teaching is called scholarly writing. It's a writing class. And I'm going to find a way to incorporate very conscious readings so that my students can be exposed to different mm. authors and to different theories. And so one of, one of, and, and I tie it to their, their dissertation topics. So I, you know, find out what their interests are and then I'm literally purposefully exposing them to new readings. One of them was the, um, it's called um, Mendes versus West, Westminster, which is a, um, let me see, a Supreme Court case in California over Mexican-American students and, and essentially um, segregation. And so one of the students mentioned like, oh my gosh, I never knew that this existed. Like you hear of Brown versus, you know, um, it's the education board, but you don't hear about these other cases mm -hmm. with, with specifically with Mexican-American students. And I said, oh yeah, I go. if I'm not mistaken, there's three that I know of. The Westminster case, the... Um, Garden Grove incident, which was in San Diego, California. And then there's one in, in Texas. And she said, really? And I said, yes. I go, we're going to take a break at break. Let me find it. And, you know, I, I'll submit it. I'll share it with the group. And that's what I did. So it's like being very intentional with that, you know, like letting them explore readings that unfortunately until this doctoral level course, they've never had known about mm -hmm. and these are readings that you know i i feel like they're even pat that passive but like they're a few years old but they're my favorite and they're core readings um but there's there's new readings that come out weekly now that are, that are more transformational um so it's it definitely informs my my teaching by incorporating that by by kind of just exploring you know what about these ideas have you mm -hmm. have y'all thought about this in a different way um and anti-deficit is probably my, probably my biggest, I'll tell you, grading is a social construct. So back to like the star exam, right? Like <laughs> the grading is a social construct. You come to my class, are you going to get an A? Yeah, sure. I want to know if you're going to learn. I want to know that if you're going to be able in my advanced qualitative research class, if you're going to be able to take these tools and apply them in your dissertation. And so I do that very intentionally because like I have a reflection paper and I didn't have a paper before. It was, I think last time I did it in a, like a very, in a Google doc, but I wanted them to tell me like, what did you learn? What questions do you still have? How can you apply this? And then now I'm, I've changed it to a paper so that it's, you know, more in line with what the university would like, but it's, it's all like just exploring, like, tell me what you've learned. Like last night, they only have five assignments, I think. And they go, well, how, like, how do you prove that you've learned data analysis? And I go, you're going to take a screenshot. How I'll know, you know, is through your presentation. Like if you can yeah. explain it to me, that tells me that you've, you've learned it. Yeah. But of course, for the assignment purposes, like just take a picture and upload it. Um, and again, it's also, I'm very, I'm probably a little too lax <laughs> in the grading aspect because I start my classes with 
a very intentional survey. I want to get to know my students. I want to know what multiple identities they have. Are their parents? <laughs> are they parents? Are they caretakers? Because I understand, like being a student is just one thing that they do. It's not all of it. So by the time they reach my class at seven p.m., they've probably been up since five or six in the morning, and they've had a whole day. So I, I acknowledge that, and then I acknowledge, you know, how they're coming to class. And then I acknowledge everything that's going on in the world. Like, I don't want to pretend it's not on fire. And so, and that I say, okay, like, how do we bring ourselves to the space for the next two hours to be intentional and to try to have good, you know, good learning and good conversation and and outcomes. Um, So it definitely informs my work. And it's just a matter of asking. And I, I hope that they know that I learned so much from them. And I know they tell me like that they've learned a lot from what I bring into the class, but I hope that they know like they're teaching me so much as well, because I'm definitely a community college, you know, higher ed. I'm in that space. Everything in K through 12, I only know from a parent perspective. And so I tell them that like you're teaching me as educators because the experience that I have is through this one lens. And so I share that through my parent lens, but this is like my kind of my thoughts that I have. I've, I haven't done any studies on it. Of course not. But, you know, I can gather this and I tell them, like, tell me if I'm wrong, but like, I've only been in the Valley for a year. And this is what I've, the conclusion I've kind of picked up on. Am I, am I on par? Am I completely off? Or and they're like, no, that's pretty spot on. And I'm like, okay, I, it's, it's, it's just my observations, you know? And, and I think that what we, what we don't do well is we're not transparent And we don't like to look in the mirror, right? Like if we have something on our nose or something in our teeth, like it's okay to look in the mirror to get it off. And instead, what we don't like to do here is to look in the mirror to like be better, right? Um, And so, and I, I, I hope that we, we can get comfortable at that. Like, let's get comfortable at being uncomfortable to fix it, to make it better. Um, And I feel I, some part of me is I know I, I'm a little too, too fast for some people. And I don't, I feel I'm going very slowly. Like, look, I'm going as slow as possible. Cause I also know like you, I have a colleague who's from born and raised in the Valley and she's, um, she's a little older than me. She goes, you have to bear with me. And I said, look, like my teachers, I, or my students, I meet people where they are. Um, and you, because it's a realizing that you're unlearning like when you go through that, when you realize she goes, everything I've been taught up to this point has been a lie. And I'm like, that's so powerful. And it's your journey and it's your process. And I'm just here to listen and to, you know, guide her, you know, be here however you think I need to be here. But know that I went through that myself. I feel like there's a point where we all, we, there's a moment that we all remember when we're kind of like a little bit unwoken. And I go, that happened to me in my master's program where I was just so frustrated with the system because I'm like, why doesn't everybody know this? I'm so mad (laughs) that my parents don't know that, you know, like, God, like why, you know, why did, again, why did the so few that get to this, you know, doctoral program get to know this? And that bothers me. Like, then it goes back to like the whole education system. Like, why are we, um, how can we not, how can we teach this sooner? Um, Yeah, my long-winded answers to your question. No, no, I I love it. I love it. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Thank you for your time today. And thank you for sharing, like, wonderful stories. Um, The, you know, how the work that you're doing and how it, you know, how, like, sort of, how you see it kind of even in in real life, right? You know, and, and with, with the work that you're doing with your daughter, but then also with your students and your teaching. So thank you. Um, ah, that was wonderful. Um, thank you for sharing that. And um, I, I don't know, I, I don't have any other questions. Anything else you want to leave us with before we go? I know. Thank you for having me. Um, hope y'all don't kick me out of the state too fast. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think I've- you're good. Okay, good. good. I, I've been learning. It's like, okay, I, I've been finding like colegas throughout the state. And you know what? That really is helpful because sometimes I think I, you feel so alone in a new space and you're like, you know, you think you're alone in these thoughts. And so when yeah. I can find people throughout the state that like, just kind of say like, no, we're, we, you know, we're allies or, you know, there's more of us here than you think. And that's, that's comforting to know. 
and it helps me um, continue to disrupt the state of Texas. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're happy to have you. I mean, I, I may not speak for everybody, but I'm happy to have you. I'm happy to have you at the institution. I know the institution is better for it. So, Dr. Melissa Veta, thank you so much for your time. Um, best of luck in your research, and and we will follow up so I can get your other your the rest of your story on the other podcasts. So thank Sounds you. Sounds good. Thank you. All right. Um, this concludes another episode of Office Hours with Dr. J as part of the Way to College podcast. Uh, tune in next time for another episode. Bye.